In season four of Mega Dumbcast, I unearthed and punched open the secrets of Shadaloo, buried on each and every goddamn page of the aptly named Secrets of Shadaloo, a supplement for the Street Fighter storytelling game. Along the way, I blazed a trail into M. Bison's island headquarters of Mriganka, where I encountered some of Shadaloo's most intriguing gaming possibilities, yet left many still to be discovered. This week, the time has come to go back. Join me now in revisiting Mriganka. It's day five of revisiting Mriganka, and the time has finally come to discuss the 1994 live-action Street Fighter movie. I hadn't seen this movie for a long time. Seeing it again was one of the major reasons to do this miniseries. Whatever tedium I put myself through on the Street Fighter wiki, digging around on YouTube for footage from obscure games, this movie made up for it. It really did not disappoint. It holds up. I mean, not that it's good. It was never good. Unlike some famously bad movies that you watch them with some perspective, and it's like, yeah, it's fine. Street Fighter is a, a legendarily bad movie that is truly bad, but it's entertaining. It's, it's one of the bad movies I would most like to watch on any given day because it's full of all kinds of little treats. It, it's like a, a dubious carnival of a film. A lot of things are cheap. A lot of things are fake, but it's so colorful and so various and so shameless in its own garishness that you can't help but be swept away. You just want to run around looking at everything, but I can't do that today. My mission here is to revisit Mriganka, and so I've got to limit myself to things from this wonderful, horrible film that are relevant to Mriganka. After this moment, I'm not even going to talk about Jean-Claude Van Damme, who is so fucking bizarre in this movie on every level from casting to dialogue to story construction to all of his little friends. I could talk forever about Guile in this movie, but this is it. The moratorium, no more Guile, no more Jean-Claude Van Damme, except as they relate to Chateloup City which is what Shadaloo's headquarters is called in this movie. In the Street Fighter movie, M. Bison, played by Raul Julia, he is the charismatic but clearly unhinged ruler of Shadaloo City. Now, Shadaloo is kind of a nation, kind of a city. It's in Southeast Asia, but it's not an island. And the backstory is there's been this civil war going on for a long time. So Bison and his team operate out of this big headquarters underneath temple ruins and they've been fighting for control of the city or country or whatever Shadaloo is for a number of months. So this is almost a sovereign nation, but we're not quite there yet. If Bison's plan unfolds without any undue interference from American heroes who are clearly from Belgium, this is going to become something like the Mriganka that we know from the video game. These are early days. This version of Bison doesn't have a whole island to play with. He's got one big hideout in one city, and honestly, that hideout has been very frugally kept down to like four locations. Most of it takes place in one big room. Nonetheless, there is so much packed into this headquarters that fits the vibe of Mriganka, and especially that fits the M. Bison of the role-playing game. So let me just start laying all this stuff out, and let's start with that big central room where Bison does almost everything he does in this movie. It's a huge room full of primarily one thing, and if you've been listening to this whole series, you can probably guess what that one thing is. It's view screens. View screens, view screens. There is no direction you can turn in this room that you are not looking at a view screen, except down, because down is where the hostage pit is. The other big feature of this room is that there's a big pit in the middle of it with a sliding door on top. I think you would expect, if you knew Bison only from other media, for this to be like a pit down into some kind of uh, psychic fire or like crushing wheels or something like that to dispose of people, but it's not. It's just a holding area. And initially that seems not to make a ton of sense, 
Like you wouldn't think you would keep your captives directly below where all your business is done. Like in the event that they were rescued, they would have heard a bunch of stuff that you've been talking about. There are only so many security measures you can put in place when your captives are literally feet away from you at all times, separated by one sliding door. But the reason the location makes sense is because this version of Bison is extremely hands-on. He needs those hostages at hand because he plans to take over the world from this room. And so he needs to be able to trot out these hostages and show them to people and carry off his blackmail schemes or whatever. Obviously, he makes heavy use of hostages. We just see this one batch in the movie, but like his base has one main room. And one of the two main features in that room is a hostage pit. It didn't just happen to be there. I wouldn't be surprised if M. Bison's, you know, graph paper blueprint for what he wanted from an evil HQ started with the hostage pit and the view screens and then just sort of everything else had to fit around that because Bison is a man with a plan. Number one, you need hostages. You need leverage. Number two, you need media access. And that's where these view screens come in. These view screens are giving the impact activated biographical data view screen from the video games a run for their money as the pinnacle of view screen technology. I've talked about how kind of all of the different iterations of Bison seem to share a love of telecom technology. Many of them seem to be able to like jam surveillance, broadcast Bison onto all different TV channels, coordinate the global empire of Shadowloo, obviously, uh, intercept communications. But Raul Julia's Bison is capable of something I haven't seen from the other Bisons in a scene right near the beginning of the movie, when a certain heroic individual who loves his country and the splits is talking on the news. And kind of posturing an M. Bison, like, ah, oh, damn you, we'll get those hostages back. M. Bison is watching, and M. Bison gets so mad, he decides to go ahead and get on cam and respond to this posturing. Not in a monologue, mind you, but in a dialogue. M. Bison's mastery of telecom in this movie is such that if he's watching the news and he doesn't like what someone is saying, he can turn the television broadcast into a, a Zoom call, televised for the world to see. Two-way video communication with the person who's like standing there talking to a CNN reporter. Imagine the power to just talk to anyone you see on TV. Imagine being able to watch uh, one of those news channels, and when someone is full of shit, you just grab a microphone and look into the TV, and are like, you're full of shit, Tucker Carlson or whoever, and Tucker Carlson can see you, and hear you, and talk to you, and it's on TV. You and Tucker Carlson going back and forth. You can see where this initially seems like a very appealing prospect, but it's too much power, it's too much temptation. It would ruin your life. Being able to, at any time, interject and argue with famous people in view of the entire public. It's only in this moment that I realize I'm describing Twitter. But Twitter also <laughs> will ruin your life. I think this proves my point. <laughs> Having this power would be like being on Twitter. And, as is the case with Twitter, it will bring out your darkest side. It's no wonder that M. Bison is thoroughly over the edge in this movie. He is essentially engaged in life-or-death Twitter drama with the entire world. I, I mentioned before, this is just really a hideout. And that's true. It's very small compared to the Shadowloo bases that we see other bisons have. But this bison dreams big. In fact, he's got a little area off to the side with a little, like, model of his plans for what he calls Bisonopolis. Like, there's a sign on the wall that says Bisonopolis, and then there's a table, and then there's a little, like, scale model of what Bisonopolis will look like. The ancient temple will still be there. For whatever reason, he doesn't want to move the operation once he takes over the country. He's going to remain here at the ancient jungle ruins. But next to the ancient jungle ruins, he's going to fashion this very large uh, shopping mall-like structure that is going to be the heart of Bisonopolis. He mentions that there's going to be a food court. He's already thinking ahead. This bison, he is a man of sweeping and detailed ambition. He's talking to his subordinates in the film, on camera, not just spending his time, but hours, discussing the fact 
you know, Burger King, McDonald's, all the big franchises are going to want their place in the food court slash government headquarters of Shadowloo City once Bison wins the Civil War. So we have to consider how big the shopping mall slash government building is going to be uh, to accommodate all these various food franchises. And all of this is already being worked out via scale model as the Civil War is ongoing. I appreciate this on multiple levels. One of them is, as we talked about with Scaramanga's Island, I like an area. I like a location within the base. I like Scaramanga's uh, gymnastics pit with the pommel horse, right? But the problem with implementing that for M. Bison is that M. Bison doesn't have the wide variety of sophisticated interests that a Scaramanga has. Bison is interested in himself and what he's doing. It seems like an intractable contradiction in the supervillain aesthetic. But brilliantly, this movie has somehow squared the circle within Bison's lair is a little side room with a scale model of Bison's lair so that when he's not busy founding Bisonopolis, he can walk over to the little tiny scale model of Bisonopolis and rule Bisonopolis at like 150th scale. Perfect. Fantastic. I feel like Bison is a guy who would like little models. In fact, you could argue that with early intervention, uh, M. Bison could have been turned into a relatively harmless wargaming enthusiast and not the world-threatening dictator that he is. But that tiny scale ship has sailed. He is who he is. The Bisonopolis corner is perfect. And in addition to being a really good fit for Bison's personality, especially in this movie, one thing we can pull from this is that this version of Bison's vision for his headquarters, his home, is much more like mainstream, much more commercial. The Mriganka from Secrets of Shadaloo, as much as I love it, we often had to wonder, where do the people live? Like what? It's a whole country, but there seems to be nothing here but guards, traps, evil churches, and radioactivity. There's no fucking food court on Mriganka. I mean, I think there are fast food places, as we discussed in the main season, but those are just little operations to serve the guards and the robot makers and all that. There's no prospect of the nation of Mriganka ever actually having a nation of people in it. Bisonopolis is much more promising on that front. That's not to say that the M. Bison of this movie is realistic in his plans. Uh, he, he definitely is not. One of the wonderful, famous bits from this movie is that in an arms deal, M. Bison attempts to pay Sagat in bison bucks. <laughs> bison, M. Bison has started printing his own currency already. So he's got this uh, strategic stockpile of currently worthless paper with his face on it. But it's going to be worth something once he takes over first Burma or wherever the fuck he is and then the world. In fact, and this is like, goddamn, did the writers understand the psychology of M. Bison. If they succeeded at nothing else, and that is the case, they definitely got M. Bison. M. Bison has not only decided there's going to be a currency with his face on it, he has already decided its exchange rate with the British pound based on his future plans to kidnap the queen and hold her hostage until his demands for an exchange rate between pounds and bison bucks is met. For M. Bison, that is money in the bank. Like, he's definitely splurged on at least one particularly nice view screen, a little bit beyond his means, and just kind of written down in his notebook where he manages his budget, cost of personal entertainment flat screen to be offset by bison bucks after Civil War ends, Burma is conquered, world is conquered, queen is kidnapped, queen is ransomed, exchange rate with the British pound is set. I don't need to worry about where the money is coming from to pay for this view screen, the queen is already as good as kidnapped, as far as I'm concerned. That is in Bison's mentality. But even worse than the Bison Bucks, which I, I do love so much, what really, to me, encapsulates this Bison's vision, his, his program for creating the world he envisions, and in a certain sense, his hubris at thinking that a detailed plan must succeed if you wear a sufficiently official hat, 
and have enough view screens. Uh, it's a small detail, but the Shadaloo guards in this movie sometimes speak to each other in broken Esperanto, and there's signage all over Shadaloo City in Esperanto. Propaganda posters, mostly, but also like warning signage. I mean, there's an incinerator with a warning on it that says basically, warning, this is the incinerator. Don't incinerate yourself, but it's written only in Esperanto. It's not really any of our business why M. Bison wants people to speak Esperanto, but given that he does, it's a baller move to make people work next to an incinerator and pass by it every day and put a sign on it that says, hey, dumbass, don't get incinerated, only in Esperanto. Like, I think Bison has already envisioned the day when someone is just going to walk into the incinerator, having no idea what it is, just taking a wrong turn to go to the locker rooms or whatever. I think Bison is waiting and ready to tell that person's supervisor, did you give him the training packet when you hired him? I see. And did he sign the page about learning Esperanto? He did. And then he didn't learn Esperanto. And because he didn't know Esperanto, he walked into the incinerator. And now he's incinerated. I see. Here's what I'd like you to do. Order a cake. Send the interns out to get some crepe paper. Let's set up a little party in the break room. And today at lunch, let's celebrate that the juggernaut of Esperanto has crushed one more skeptic. Assemble the Shadaloo Esperanto Band. This occasion calls for music. I think M. Bison is fully prepared for any consequences of trying to enforce Esperanto on these people, which can't be done. I mean, not to argue with Bison, but I don't think that M. Bison is a student of language. Like, officially, I don't think his degree would be in a particular language or in literature or in linguistics. And therefore, he doesn't understand that we've all been through this stage where you're learning about a language, let's say English, that doesn't make any goddamn sense. And you have the thought, you know, this language is stupid. Fuck this language. Let's all invent and learn a new language that isn't garbage. We'll simply pass legislation that all official business must now be transacted in a language where all letters in a word are pronounced, all conjugations are regular, verbs have all of the three tenses that we need and none of the weird ones that we don't, plus past perfect. Past perfect is cool. Past perfect can stay. And uh, I don't see any reason this can't be done by next week. Clearly... Everything in the world would just work a lot better if we all get on board with one language that makes sense. And it would make things a lot easier. But it has never happened and will never happen. It is a fool's dream. And that's bison up and down, though. You know, this bison wants Pax Bisonica. I kid you not. He talks about it. It's not just a logo on a motivational poster around his employees, although it is that too. Pax Bisonica is his plan. He wants to bring peace to the world through the simple expedient of having one man in a stylish hat make every decision from his room full of view screens. I'm not saying that every fan of Esperanto is a dictator, but I'm saying that that spirit is animating the heart of everyone who is really into Esperanto, I feel. Let's cut out the bullshit and all do this, is the basic sentiment of Esperanto. Uh, moving away now from the linguistic portion of the podcast episode, other things that we know about Bison's base and the way he operates we see him at this big arms-dealing conclave with Sagat. Uh, this is Shadaloo Forces dealing with Sagat, who's like a crime lord in Shadaloo City. And it is an expansive festival of guns. This is not like, let's meet in a parking structure and I'll open our cool briefcases and make a trade. This is, let's go to the outskirts of the city. Let's put up party lights. Let's have music. Let's have an actual magic show as we all gather around and just kind of mingle and get to know each other and have some fellowship before we buy guns from one another. This is relationship building. This is team building. This is like, as a leader, 
showing your power and gaining loyalty and, and gaining respect by being a great host, throwing a big party. It's a, it's a time-honored tactic. The bison in this movie gets it, and it's a much better choice for a different bison who owns a whole goddamn island that almost no one in their right mind would want to go to. Rigonka is really just crying out for, like, festivals, convention space, birthday rentals. Any location on Rigonka that we talked about in Season 4, no matter how dangerous, is one that basically any 8-year-old would give their life to have for the day as a birthday party location. God only knows what this version of Im Bison could achieve, festival-wise, party-wise, if he had a whole island to play with. Although I do have to point out he should probably delegate the details of that, because the magic show that he hired did turn out to be Chun-Li, E-Honda, and Balrog in fanciful outfits, and then they um, sent a van full of bombs to blow up all his shit. So maybe Bison could have employed like a party planner of some kind, just to kind of check out all the details that Bison doesn't have time for. Like, hey, I love your magic, I love what you do. Could you take off the domino mask for just a second? I understand it's an inconvenience, but it's our policy to make sure that everyone we hire isn't secretly Chun-Li. That's a quick fix. Bison could easily delegate that sort of thing. We've mainly talked about the mundane side of the base so far, so I want to get into a couple of combat-relevant things for true street fighting action in a Shadowloo base. Shadowloo HQ is not as expansive in this movie as it is in other places, but the things it has definitely hit. Number one, there is a super soldier program. And it is designed almost in a reality television style with display in mind. There's a reveal built into this super soldier program. So underneath the one big room where Bison does everything with his view screens, there's a lab. In this lab works a character who is, in name and in no other way, Dalsim. This Dalsim is a scientist, and this scientist has been assigned to helping create a super soldier. There's this kind of uh, cylinder that you put the person in, and they're treated with all kinds of weird chemicals and stuff. and their eyes are pinned open clockwork orange style, and they're forced to watch horrible things to turn them into a monster psychologically as well. Once again, I'm not sure why Bison feels that it's an important qualification for the ideal soldier to be mindlessly violent and devoid of human intellect. I think the idea is that this will purge all vestiges of uh, humanity and compassion, like no more, I love this, I care about that, I believe in whatever. I think there's a significant danger that it will also purge all vestiges of I, a giant monster, will do what I am told by Raul Julia, but whatever. We're, we're in the prototype stage of this super soldier project. These are early days. It's like short stories. you got to make a hundred bad super soldiers before you make any good ones. You might as well get those out of the way. Bison is doing a great job of that because the super soldier he creates in the film is Blanca, who is made by taking the best friend of a hotshot Air Force officer who will not be named, uh, throwing him into the tank, and then exposing him to the chemicals and the psychological torment. Dalsim manages to sneak in some good stuff, sneak in some some visions of like kittens, a family, Martin Luther King Jr. Like if you had to prove to someone that the human species is not all bad, but you could only use stock photography, that kind of stuff. So Blanca doesn't end up fully evil, but that's not important. Okay, so the monster is not perfect. It's mostly about presentation. We got this super soldier project underneath the main floor, right? The reason is that when you want to unleash the super soldier on someone in your control room, which ideally you would avoid a situation where your greatest secret weapon has to be deployed in your workspace at your desk, that's really closer than you want UN forces to get. But I think Bison rightly foretold that's the way things were going to go down at a climactic moment. So the tube that makes Blanca into a super soldier rises up and it, it goes up to the main floor, like a hatch opens and the tube goes up to the main floor very dramatically. And then 
a like a walkway made of like sharp blades. The sharp blades all pop up and form a walkway, like a runway. And then the tube opens and then the monster walks out and down the big, dramatic, jagged red carpet that you've set up for your super soldier's dramatic entrance. Goofy, yes. Impractical, yes. But what an encounter. Like, just think about it as a GM for a minute. What an encounter that you bust into the bad guy's secret base and then this tube comes up from the ground and then the blades come up and it's a whole walkway and there's smoke and then the tube opens and the smoke comes out and then the super soldier stalks out to join the combat. For months thereafter, people are going to be saying, remember that badass encounter with the super soldier where he came up out of the fucking ground and there was all the smoke. No one is going to be saying afterward, hey, remember that architecturally improbable encounter that we had with the super soldier. So this is good encounter design. Once again, good GMing instincts from M. Bison. He's into minis. He's got a flair for the dramatic. He can plan and he can improvise. Good encounter design. Once again, we could have skipped this whole dictator thing and just had a great hard-ass GM in M. Bison, but for want of a nerdy cousin to get him into D&D, the entire world suffers. The other big thing here, there's auto life support in the base. So there's a big climactic battle. I don't think I'm giving anything away when I say there's a big, big evil base fight at the end of Street Fighter. The good guys bust into Shadowloo headquarters, lots of sparks, lots of things flying around. And finally, M. Bison is on the ropes, seemingly KO'd, maybe about to die. But his base has auto life support in this movie. See, the whole base has what they call a superconductor field. There's all kinds of electrical shit happening all over. It powers all the equipment. It allows M. Bison's levitating platform to levitate so he can levitate around and look in the giant view screen eye to eye rather than having it loom over him. And when M. Bison is about to die or be very knocked out, I don't know which one, the superconductor field kind of mega defibrillates him. So not only is he resuscitated, but he's charged with electrical power and he gains the ability to like levitate and fly around and do the psycho crusher, kind of. Raul Julia will only ever be so deadly as a projectile. But I feel like this superconductor field gets him in pretty close to his natural maximum. This field charges him up so he can shoot electricity out of his hands. This is an amazing feature. It's got everything we like about the psycho drive in some versions of Shadowloo HQ where it powers everything. And so when you blow it up, everything else just blows up. So you have your properly satisfying big bad battle where after you win, everything else is wrecked. But also before everything is wrecked, this giant fragile power source focuses inward and supercharges Bison for one last fight. That's badass. Now, Mriganka is not going to have a superconductor field, at least not as its main power source. But let's say either the nuclear reactor or the meteorite. In any case, I think it would be fantastic if the meteorite, if Bison is nearly beaten, draws power from the rest of Mriganka and like shuts down all those, you know, robots and stuff and focuses it into Bison so that if it all comes down to a fist fight, once you've already fought the big lasers and the robots and the whatnot, all that power gets focused into Bison and you get to have like a big pyrotechnic fight against Bison at his best. And once you beat him, then, you know, Mriganka is in flames and it's just a matter of running away. Absolutely perfect for an action climax, which is like the wonderful and frustrating thing about the Street Fighter movie. It's all the elements of a very entertaining action movie, just lying broken in a haphazard pile, like on British Bake Off, where somebody makes a thing and then it collapses right before they have to present it to the judges. And so they have to walk up there in shame with their little tray just full of like pastel shit. That's what the Street Fighter movie feels like. It feels like somebody just about got together a really nice, well-constructed action movie. And then one of the layers of cake fell through and like three hours before the release date, the whole thing just collapsed into an inedible heap. And it's like, well, it's not like we can cancel the premiere now. Like the actors all cash their checks. 
we have no choice but to let people play this in theaters. Um, we are we are very sorry. If I had all the time in the world, there's so much more that I could say here. Balrog and E-Honda, who are basically unrecognizable in this movie, but they are a boxer and a sumo wrestler, they both have a grudge against Bison because he interfered with their sporting careers. So one of the best things from Secrets of Shadaloo is here, where Shadaloo, for some reason, gets involved in boxing and sumo wrestling, and presumably all sports, just to fuck people over. Despite the fact that M. Bison is also currently engaged in the civil war in Southeast Asia, he has time to <laughs> either fly out himself or send agents to American boxing promotions and Japanese sumo wrestling and just interfere with people's professional goals. This movie's M. Bison has a floating platform with a control panel that looks like the joystick and buttons from the Street Fighter video game, and he uses it to remote control all of the island's defenses, including mines, which I feel like defeats the purpose of a minefield as a defensive perimeter, especially when you're using a joystick. Like, imagine trying to enter your initials on a high score list in an arcade game in time to stop a speedboat in motion. That's the state of M. Bison's aquatic defense in this movie, but it is cool that he controls it all from a little panel. But I just can't get too far into any of that stuff because I have to say here at the end, the scene that left the biggest impression on me is that we actually get to see M. Bison's quarters. When he captures Chun-Li, he first of all dresses her up in her video game outfit, which is not as creepy as it might sound because he also, for various contrived reasons, essentially gives video game clothes to all of the protagonists. It's very silly. But anyway, every character gets put into their video game outfit for some reason at some time. So it's not so weird that M. Bison captures Chun-Li in a perfectly functional, like, sneaky ninja suit, and then the next time we see her, she's in her fancy red dress. This iteration of Bison just likes to dress people up. But I can't front like his motives are entirely pure with Chun-Li because he's clearly into Chun-Li. He's clearly trying to seduce her. And that's what this scene is about. M. Bison takes Chun-Li into his quarters and you have to see these quarters to believe them. But I'll just give you the highlights. M. Bison takes her in there. It's extremely themed. A lot of Shadaloo logo type stuff. A lot of skulls, as you would expect. But it's not all business. It's not totally austere. There's a little bar over on the side wall with custom Shadaloo drink stirs. Bison goes in to see Chun-Li in his dictator outfit, but there's also a changing screen. And when Bison goes behind the changing screen, he takes off his dictator hat. I know, shocking, but just wait. It'll all make sense. He takes off his dictator hat. He switches to Bison casual back there. He gets on like a nice casual kind of evening jacket. He switches to another hat. He has a rack full of the same hat, but palette swapped so that he has a dictator hat for any of his outfits. There are paintings here. Remember in the Scaramanga episode, I talked about art on Bison's wall. We find out here what kind of art Bison has. The first one is about what you would expect. It is a painting of M. Bison on a horse, looking very heroic. But also, on an easel is a painting of M. Bison as a clown. It's on an easel, obviously done by Bison himself. And this is a reference to the Pogo the Clown paintings by Jeffrey Dahmer, I don't want to get deep into like Jeffrey Dahmer or why the filmmakers would feel the need to connect him to Bison, but I will say this. The fact that Bison paints, the fact that he paints himself, and the fact that he paints himself in a way that is sort of like an outlet for his sadness, his regret, his tenderness, his vulnerability, but then right next to it, there's like an alcove with all kinds of uh, weapons hanging on the walls, like just sort of a gallery slash arsenal of deadly weapons. And also there's skulls everywhere and a little bar. Just all of this combines to make Bison feel not exactly real, but real in the sense of making no goddamn sense, like a real person. It's hard to put something satisfying in Bison's quarters if your player characters have fought all the way through Merganka, 
it's very hard to pay that off at the end with Bison's bedroom. But I feel like if we bust in and there's a little bar with Chateau stirs where we can make ourselves a drink, there's a big dramatic portrait of Bison on a horse, there's a hat rack with all his dictator hats, and there's an easel where he's been painting a picture of himself as a sad dictator clown. For me, that is like a full meal, a nice drink, and a little buttermint at the end. That is every... I'm absolutely done. I'm leaving this table wanting for nothing. You have made good on the promise of seeing what's in M. Bison's bedroom. This movie does that. If only for that reason, you just have to see and appreciate this movie. In the film, Chun-Li does not get busy with M. Bison, even though he has a remote control that he hits it and it like turns on his sound system and switches the lighting to a different sexier color, switches his room from kill mode to fuck mode. Despite that, Chun-Li doesn't go for it. So we don't really penetrate into that that final frontier of understanding M. Bison. We don't get to see what it's like when M. Bison actually bones down. But I do think his underwear matches his dictator costume. It all fits together, all the different facets of Bison. Obviously, in the nightstand next to the bed, we're going to have Chateau branded condoms. These aren't for sale anywhere. I think there's a facility devoted to making these. It's not farmed out to any existing condom company. I think that Bison probably created an entire condom manufacturing facility and staff just to make these Chateau branded condoms just for his personal sex life and for anybody else who wants to have sex around the base and is a Chateau member or a guest. I like I think if you're trying to get plowed to blow off some steam in your little quarters off the view screen room, I don't think the person or persons with a penis in this scenario have to swear loyalty to Bison, although probably the oath is printed on the back of the condom, Dr. Bronner style, but it's optional. But yeah, like I don't think this is to strike fear in anybody's heart at this stage. Like, I don't think these are supposed to be intimidating condoms. It's just like everything has to match the theme. Everything has to be me. That's Bison's aesthetic. So this is all some pretty touchy-feely stuff about Bison's personality, right? I mean, this is him vulnerable. He is just a boy in a dictator hat standing in front of a girl who he has dressed in a kung fu outfit, asking her to indulge his curiosity about what the fuck a person who can do a whirlwind kick can get up to in the bedroom in a respectful way. He's wooing her, right? But we know that there's a hard edge to Bison. This room also has a safe room slash death trap. The little uh, drama lit arsenal on the wall over in this little kind of alcove, that is the safe room. If Bison goes in there where all the weapons are kept and he hits a little switch, then that room becomes airtight. That's his airtight safe room. Then the exits to the rest of his bedroom close and the whole thing fills up with gas to knock people out. And at first I thought, this seems like a bad safe room slash death trap design, correct? Because presumably the idea of the safe room would be it's a place you can hide to await help if you're attacked. But in the event that you get into the little safe room while people are still outside in the main part of the base, right? They're in the view screen room, checking doors, looking for Bison's quarters. Then this closed off empty room full of gas is useless. And in the event that they're already in your room, uh, it's going to be difficult to get from your bed or whatever over to your alcove safe room. What wouldn't be so difficult is for someone who is in your quarters to go over to the alcove where all the weapons are, grab a weapon, and while they're there, flip a switch that will lock them in where you can't hurt them, seal all the exits to your room, and fill it with gas while you're still having that dream about Cammy again. So very possibly this security arrangement can end up giving your assailant a gun, giving them an impenetrable room to hide in, and trapping you in a room full of gas. If the assailant is an assailant and wants to hurt you and takes the initiative, I don't think that's the scenario Bison envisions. Almost all of Bison's death traps that we see in Rigonka, for example, are pretty proactive. Like, they're designed more with the employee than with the intruder in mind. 
And there's a lot of stuff you have to be like thrown into. There's there's less of like minefields, trapped doors, that kind of stuff, and more of let me invite this person to the conference room, have them sit in the second chair down on the left side, and having made these arrangements, I can drop them into the killer squid tank. So that's what this is. He invites them to his bedroom to attack them. And the safe room is not a safe room, it's a gloating room. It's sealed off, but with like plexiglass or whatever, so you can still see him laughing at you as you fall unconscious. Anyway, I could talk about Bison's quarters forever, let alone the whole movie. But the Chateau-themed clock on the wall says that it's time to wrap this one up. So let's talk about what we could rip off from the Street Fighter movie for Regonka. Where do I even begin? The answer to that question, like the answer to all location-based questions in the Street Fighter live-action film, is with the view screens. Where do we keep the hostages? With the view screens. Where do we put the Super Soldier debut elevator? With the view screens. And this segment is starting with the view screens. Uh, Bison's headquarters, and particularly that one big view screen room, that is worth the price of admission for gaming inspiration for this movie. While I love the island nation of Mriganka much more than in Bison having a hideout, within the island nation of Mriganka, I want there to be a command center like the big view screen room in this movie. I particularly love whatever bullshit equipment it is that allows him to transform live television into a two-way Zoom call. That's amazing. The whole obsession with telecommunications that we see in Bison Across Media really reaches its pinnacle, I think, in this movie. The RPG version of Bison doesn't have such a pronounced interest in it, right? Like, he doesn't really have any anti-surveillance or jamming equipment. That's probably because Bison is a head of state and not openly a criminal in the role-playing game, but I still think he should have this over-the-top telecom technology. In fact, that kind of makes it better, because, like, a criminal genius, an overt supervillain, broadcasting his face around the world, it's stock megalomania, and it strikes one as standard supervillainy, which is not a complaint. I do love it. But the Bison of the role-playing game would do this in his capacity as an honest, legitimate island dictator, a world leader who simply has a bone to pick with your choice of words on Meet the Press and has decided on this Sunday morning to insert himself into the conversation to assure everyone that UN peacekeeping forces are not needed because M. Bison has never seen that gigantic skull Buddha robot that destroyed the Eiffel Tower in his life. And even if he had, didn't the Eiffel Tower have it coming? I think that's more fun coming from a person who wants to be seen as a legit world leader than from an overtly evil criminal kingpin. In fact, it is only as I say this that I realize I'm actually drawing unconsciously from the old Spider-Man uh, video game for the Sega Genesis. One thing that happens in that game before one of the later stages is that kingpin, whose evil plan Spider-Man is trying to foil in the game, takes over the airways and, and broadcasts himself to the people of New York anonymously. I mean, not in a mask or anything, on screen, Wilson Fisk a public figure with what I would characterize as a distinctive body shape. But he, he says, my name is of no importance. I am an anonymous, round man. Forget about me. I'm just here to say that Spider-Man, he sure is a menace. He's responsible for a lot of the crimes that have happened lately. And I just thought I, an anonymous good Samaritan with the ability to force my way into and broadcast myself across all broadcast television channels, I thought I would just inform all of you, Spider-Man is a bad guy and he did it. I'm not looking for glory. Just everybody, why don't you go, just everybody go outside and try to beat up Spider-Man. Why not? And it happens. A whole stage of the game is just people from around New York who are like, you know, that anonymous man shaped like an old fashioned legs pantyhose container. He's right. He's making a good point. If he went to the trouble of seizing control over every television set in New York to tell us that Spider-Man's a bad guy, he must have darn good reasons for thinking so. Let's 
let's go shoot Spider-Man with a rifle, everybody. So you got to fight your way through the streets of New York up against all these very easily influenced people. I always thought that was a funny thing. And you can recreate it if you give the RPG M. Bison, the movie Bison's astounding view screen magic. So I highly recommend that. The Super Soldier Program. This is something I can't believe Shadaloo doesn't canonically have in the role-playing game because it is so them. That's a big addition you could make. That's an encounter waiting to happen and could easily be stretched into a whole plot. Uh, have a player character's buddy get captured and Bison tries to turn them into a super soldier. That's what happens to Charlie in this movie. And hopefully your player characters will not be absolute assholes like this movie's Guile. I know I said I wasn't going to talk about him, but he needs to be called out for this. The Guile in this movie meets his buddy, Carlos Blanca, sees that he's got green skin and is angry and has orange hair. And is just like, this is no life. I'm sorry, old friend. And pulls out his gun. And it's like, you just walked into a room and your best friend walked out of the corner with green skin. You've been talking to him for like two minutes and he growled at you. And it's like, one minute 57, one minute 58, uh, one minute 59, two minutes. Now I'm mercy kill. And already Guile has his mind made up and his weapon drawn. You know, I don't think I have ever chosen a flavor of ice cream in a supermarket as quickly as Guile decides to mercy kill his best friend in this movie. But presumably your player characters will be better people and you can make this into a whole thing. You know, I even really like the superconductor field. I, I don't think I'm going to trade the psycho drive for it. I think you need the psycho drive. You got to introduce that to the RPG. But if I were going to introduce it, I think it might end up working a lot like the superconductor field in Shadowloo HQ in this movie. Uh, so there's, there's just tons and tons of stuff to take. The game is campy. The movie is campy. It's a really good fit. Uh, what would I reject from this movie? Almost everything not bison related in this movie is garbage. I can almost get behind the portrayal of Chun-Li later in the film. And their Vega, while not the Vega of either the games or the role-playing game, is good for what he is. Other than that, every character in this movie is a travesty of an adaptation. Plot makes no sense. Army stuff makes no sense. The unique value of the setting in the franchise is transformed into Hollywood cliche and executed poorly at every turn. The movie has its charms, but as source material for Street Fighter, you're not going to find anything worth taking outside of bison and bison paraphernalia. But in terms of uh, this bison, this Shadaloo, what would I not take? I would not make any of the non-boss world warriors into bison subordinates. This movie has Zongief and DJ as employees of bison. I don't know why adaptations feel the need to turn Zongief into a villain. He's not a villain. In the original source material, and excuse me while I become outraged about the paper-thin Street Fighter canon for just a moment, in the original storyline, such as it was, all of the world warriors are good guys, except for M. Bison, Sagat, Balrog, and Vega. Everybody else, they're good people who fight each other because their job is to fight in the goddamn street. There's no reason you cannot tell a story about this. So that is one temptation I would avoid. I think Bison has all of the world warriors he needs on his side. And anyway, any spot taken up by Zongief or DJ or whoever as a Shadaloo antagonist is a spot that you're not filling with one of Mriganka's many wonderful options for killing street fighters. I'd much rather have a giant squid fight than a fight with Zongief. And if Zongief is still a good guy, he can fight the giant squid. Everybody wins. Except the squid, because Zongief is a bad motherfucker. So I think that's it for today. The Street Fighter live-action movie, you just have to see it, if for no other reason than because it is such a strange movie, and there is definitely something about its feel that is resonant with the role-playing game. That leaves only one day remaining in this bonus series, and I want to spend it giving the Street Fighter storytelling game the send-off that it so richly deserves and that it never got from White Wolf. I want to give it the dignity of ending 
with a big multiple choice apocalypse for the whole goddamn setting, just like Vampire got, just like Werewolf got, just like Mage got, and just like all the other games got kind of all crammed together into one book. Street Fighter never got that because the license had long expired. So join me next time as we consider the whole sweep of the short-lived but jam-packed Street Fighter storytelling game canon and discuss a few different ways to wrap up that setting in a satisfying fight-pocalypse on Revisiting Mrigonka. This has been Revisiting Mrigonka, a bonus series from Mega Dumbcast. Contact me or check out the show wherever you want. I am Mega Dumbcast on Podbean, Twitter, Gmail, Instagram, your podcatcher of choice, etc., etc. Street Fighter and all associated trademarks are property of Capcom. This episode's music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license, is Tired Traveler on the Way Home by Andrew Codeman, whose work you can find at raskazoff.com. That's R-A-S-S-K-A-Z-O-F-F dot com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'll bust you like a nut.